Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Coming into 2022, a lot of strategists, a lot of fund managers were saying, get ready for increased volatility. And boy, it seems like uh, at least for their first four weeks, they were right here. We've got a VIX north of 31. Uh, we've got red on the screen here today. Let's check in uh, and see what we can expect uh, going forward. Liz Young. She's head of investment strategy at SoFi. Liz, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess one of the big issues, you know, that this market's trying to discount is the Federal Reserve. We know they're going to raise rates, but now the question is, by how much, how quickly? How do you guys think about that? Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, you have to look at what the expectations are right now. And the reality of it is, we haven't moved yet, right? The Fed hasn't done anything yet, and they also haven't been all that clear about what they expect to have to do as far as rate hikes go. So it continues to be an uncertain and sort of convoluted picture, which is why the market is having so much trouble digesting it on a day-to-day -day basis. I think what actually happens is that they start to hike rates in spring of this year, but they're going to have to wait and see how much it affects things like inflation expectations, how much it affects things like the bond market. I think everybody's really hung up on how it's going to affect the equity market, but they're probably going to watch the bond market closer and then decide how much further they need to go with hikes through the rest of the year. So they'll remain basically data dependent. Um, but I wonder how much they will care about the equity market. Uh, we were um, interviewing Greg Jensen from... Um, Bridgewater the other day, and he said he thinks right now that's really not their main concern. In fact, um, the equity market, there are probably a lot of speculative bubbles that have been blown up there that the Fed wouldn't mind seeing deflated a little bit. Yeah, you know, I don't know that they're um, tasked with necessarily worrying about the speculative bubbles, but I would agree that they're not seeing the equity market as their first priority. And I said this uh, on a show earlier this week, the Fed doesn't care about our feelings anymore. <laughs> and I, I think that that's going to be the case. And, you know, the equity market last year, if we're looking at the S&P, we made 70 new all-time highs. That's a pretty good place to come into the year on. So we can afford a pullback here. And the Fed's main mandate is to control prices, maintain stable prices, and maximum employment. So those are priorities number one and number two. The employment box is all but checked, and now we're on to prices. Obviously, there's an inflation problem that they need to deal with. I think that they're going to let the equity market see volatility, and they're not going to react to that unless it starts to threaten financial stability, which, again, ends up actually being more about the bond market than the equity market. So where do you think we might see the, the 10 years? Is it going to hit 2% before it hits 1.5%? How do you think about that, Liz? Yeah, you know, well, we've seen a huge run-up in the 10-year already this year, at 30 basis points since the beginning of the year. And that's pretty swift, which I think is another reason why the equity market is seeing so much volatility. It, it has trouble uh, with big spikes in yields. But I do think we could touch two. I think we could get above two and actually get even closer to two and a quarter before things sort of level out. Now, we might have a little bit of a pause here because now – the interesting part is we're in this waiting period 
we're not going to hear from the Fed again until March 16th. And that's when everybody expects the first rate hike to happen. So there's a long period of time between now and then where the market has to kind of trudge through this uncertainty. And we might bounce around in a range on the 10-year. But I think as we get closer and closer to rate hikes, you'll see the 10-year get higher again. And I, I really do think that we can get above two in the first half of the year. Do you have any concern that we see, I mean, I've looked back at rate hike cycles for the last 20 years, and you always get um, the curve flattening, sometimes inverting. Is that a concern here? And do you think we'll hit a recession in 23, 24? Well, we've seen flattening already in the curve since Powell's statements uh, earlier this week. So I think the the spread went from somewhere in the 80 basis point, 75 or 80 basis point range down to the low 60s. Still pretty far from inverting, but that is one of those measures that I think the Fed is going to watch. They don't necessarily watch the twos, tens. They might watch a shorter term measure uh, versus the 10 year, but they're not going to want the curve to invert. And they're very aware of that dynamic in the market. I don't think one or two rate hikes is going to invert the curve, but that's why I think you know the market suggesting that we're going to have five or, or more rate hikes this year is a little ahead of itself because that would probably cause an inversion, and I don't think the Fed is going to do that. So they're going to keep their eye on it. I don't see a recession coming. I think Jerome Powell has been very careful trying to thread this needle, and he's going to continue to be careful. The idea is to allow the recovery to continue Uh, one of the ways that you allow it to continue is to make sure that inflation doesn't get in the way. Liz, 30 seconds. Kind of what's your best idea for where to be here in this rising interest rate environment? I mean, you want to look at short duration assets that goes for equities, you know, thinking about um, some of those cyclical sectors, some of the dividend payers that are going to do well here in the short term with volatility. I'd also look at healthcare for a long-term idea and international. I think this is the year where international investing has a revival both in narrative and returns. All right, Liz, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure having you on, and um, it's exciting to see what's going on at SoFi as well. So uh, great to get your take this morning. Liz Young there, she is the head of investment strategy for SoFi, and uh, that is a business that's growing. We saw them yeah. um, get more licensed. Up, Bank? Uh, over the last week, and so um, they're offering uh, just a huge platform full of products uh and i guess the kids it's just it's not just the kids anymore right? I, I i don't think so i think i'm seeing yeah. a lot more about it and uh i think it's a certainly a great option for financial services you know matt we talk a lot about fintech financial technology we talk a lot about crypto but it just it just seems to me that some of the traditional financial institutions are just slow to embrace the whole fintech thing. It just feels that way to me. I'm not sure that's right. Look at right. SoFi. Look at the growth I'm at it's SoFi. SoFi, you know? exactly right. Yeah. We were just talking to the SoFi a- analyst. But, you know, I saw the news recently that UBS agrees to buy robo-advisor Wealthfront, uh, kind of a fintech player for $1.4 billion. So that kind of gets your attention. But I want to get a sense of how some of these traditional financial institutions are thinking about embracing and investing in financial technology. We can talk about that with Robin Vince, Vice Chair and CEO of Global Market Infrastructure for BNY Mellon. Robin, you've been in the financial services industry for decades. You've seen it evolve. Do you feel like the traditional banks, financial institutions are fully embracing kind of fintech, crypto, some of the new changes in in financial services? 
Well, first, it's great to be with you today, Paul and Matt. Um, here, here at BNY Mellon, we love the show, and I'm speaking you, to you today from our headquarters here in downtown uh, New York City, uh, which is really one of the centers of innovation that we've seen in the financial world over the course of our history of 237 years. But look, to the point of old firms versus new, we don't see it in that binary way. We just view our position at the very heart of financial infrastructure, allowing us to really be an innovator. Look, we touch one-fifth of the world's investable assets. We service a super majority of global institutions. And so we're super well positioned at that exact intersection of the trust that we have from our franchise. And that gives us the ability to innovate. And you can see that in a, in a whole bunch of different things that we've been doing. We announced uh, a crypto custody effort at the beginning of last yes. year, the effort into e-bills that we're doing with Verizon. There's just a whole long list of things that we're doing. And frankly, we think it's a strength to have the established franchise uh, that we do today along with that innovation. For sure. I mean, I was going to say, in a lot of ways, BNY Mellon is on the cutting edge of this stuff. And you have been um, leaders, Tom Keene would probably say something like on the avant-garde. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you, you don't see that much enthusiasm from the rest of the street compared to um, where you see it in the city, where you see it in Miami. Um, what do you think we're going uh, we're gonna to end up with here? I mean, it's not going to be just old Wall Street banks running our finances in the future. So uh, it's going to be a best of both worlds. I mean, we welcome the competition and, frankly, the push that all of these fintech and new industry players are really providing into the space. But for us, it's about taking that client franchise we've got, the trust that we enjoy with our clients, and then innovating. So let me give you an example. So we, we announced late last year the industry-first collaboration with Verizon on real-time e-builds and payments for U.S. retail clients. Now, we're America's oldest bank, but we're the first bank to do real-time payments and real-time request for payments, which is enabling, for the first time, real direct, real-time payments from a consumer to a business, cutting out the interchange fees, cutting out the inefficiency, cutting out the environmental negative footprint of paper and fuel. And so that's a great example of exactly that type of innovation. And I'm it wasn't a fintech that did it. It was us. I'm glad you mentioned the environmental aspect because ESG has been kind of a buzzword and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of greenwashing, but you're also pushing for more diversity to include women in your uh, higher ranks to um, advance junior bankers. Tell us about that push because it's really taken on a lot of meaning this year. Or last year? Yeah, uh, yeah 100%. And that really is a critical point. We have one of the most diverse boards in the industry, and we're super proud of that. Um, for the 15th consecutive year, uh, we received a score of 100 on the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's 2022 Corporate Equality Index. It's the fifth year in the row that BNY Mellon is included in the Bloomberg Gender Equality uh, Index. And we're, we're really proud to be named as one of those firms that's really driving the equity and inclusion. And, and we're doing it at the top and we're doing it through the organization and it's the only way to be competitive over the course of the coming years as well as being the right thing to do yeah robin i worked on wall street for a long time and what i found in my experience and then even managing a business here at bloomberg is you know you can bring in if you look at the entering analyst class at any investment bank any financial institution um, over the last decade plus it will look 
very representative of the marketplace. It will have proper diversity. Um, but then when you get up to the managing director ranks, the partner ranks, that's where the you know, the real uh, glaring disparities uh, you kind of show themselves. How do you think financial institutions can do to kind of improve that trend? Well, you're right that that is the challenge. Being able to hire full range of diversity at the entry level is obviously uh, sort of table stakes at this point. Uh, it's about development and, and retention. And, and what, it, what goes into development and retention? That's ultimately about opportunity, training, giving people not only the pay, but also the interesting problems to solve. And that, for us, is one of the things that we're very proud of. We have $46 trillion worth of assets under custody. We touch 20% of the world's investable assets. We put $10 trillion of U.S. Treasuries through our platform every day. And we have this incredible franchise where we're proud to call 72% of Fortune 500 companies uh, you know, are clients and 97 of the top 100 banks. And so when you have that type of relevance and you have interesting opportunities and problems for people to solve, that's how you retain great people through the life of their careers. Can I, can I just get your take on the health of New York City um, to finish up? Because you're involved in civic service here in New York as well. And you mentioned at the top, do you think New York City is bouncing back from this pandemic with strength? We're the Bank of New York. We're never going to bet against New York City. And, you know, I sit here in our office today in downtown New York. And of course, we're having to all deal with the challenges that Omicron has presented to us all. But I'm excited for the fact that we're going to be welcoming our people back to the office in due course. And, and I'm a believer in the fact that the world has changed. And it won't be five days a week, every day, everyone in the office all the time. We're going to take advantage of all these learnings that we've had over the course of the past couple of years. We're going to be a more hybrid organization. That's going to go back to your prior point about retention. It's going to be important for that. But at the same time, being in the office some of the time at least together and contributing to the vibrancy of the city, but also contributing to that sense of culture and community, developing people, making them excited to be here, that's ultimately what our future looks like. All right, Robin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate getting your perspective uh, boy, long time at Goldman Sachs and now at the Bank of New York Mellon. Uh, Robin Vince, Vice Chair and CEO of Global Market Infrastructure at BNY Mellon. And, um, you know, a good, broad perspective of financial services um, and the pivot towards and the, I guess, the embracing of financial technology. And in cryptos. the office. Yeah, and in the office. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the city's going to be coming back uh, pretty aggressively over the next uh, several weeks and months. We are going to talk a little bit about robots, and I will, uh, well, bring in Laura Wright right now. Um, she is a reporter slash producer, um, woman about town out of London, and a uh, friend of mine, I, I will say. Also, one of my good friends from San Francisco is going to join us, Ed Ludlow. He covers uh, all things tech, plus Tesla and Rivian for us, so the EV sector, I guess that... Includes yep. Lucid and Nikola and uh, looking at the stocks here, they've been under pressure here, boy. They have been. And um, why don't we kick it off first with Laura because Tesla came out with earnings and they were a bit disappointing. Um, in that, um, I guess the the numbers themselves weren't so bad, um, but the production plan doesn't seem to be anywhere near where we thought it should be. Right, Laura? 
Yeah, that's right, Matt. Well, they're operational factories in Fremont, California and Shanghai. We learned that they've been underproducing the nightmare supply chain crunch that Elon Musk tweeted about at the end of last year has seemed to become a reality. So we knew going into these results, right, that Tesla had achieved record deliveries. It was a record profit. In spite of the supply chain difficulties that will be ahead, Tesla did, however, maintain their delivery target of 50% annual growth. And one interesting note from Morgan Stanley, they believe the bull case narrative hasn't really changed but right. it wasn't a spectacular results as we might have hoped what for, would but... change the bulls minds on tesla <laughs> i mean tesla bulls <laughs> minds cannot be changed so whatever um the interesting ju juxtaposition to this ed i think in a way is the story that you broke on rivian now it compares rivian rivian's current production to that of tesla when they first started yeah. but the idea is these guys have it together in a slightly more i guess organized way yeah, I mean, the stock's under pressure. It just hit 50 bucks this morning. The stock has been crushed, but it's still crushed. a $50 billion company, which to it, me is shocking. Right, and it's largely pre-revenue, right? They just started booking revenue, revenue on these things. But what sources tell me is that the end of the, the 2021, the fourth quarter, was tough. You know, there were COVID outbreaks at the plant. They had an all-hands-on-deck kind of scenario to get these pickup trucks, which I'm starting to see now, by the way, in San Francisco on the streets. Um, and then they tried to introduce a new product onto the assembly line, which sh they share an assembly line. And, you know, production really slowed down. So what they did, New Year's Day, boom, shut down the assembly line altogether, fixed the problems, restart it on January the 9th. And since then, they're ramping up like massively, you know, to almost 200 trucks a week. Um, which is so what are they making? They're making the R1T, which, which is the pickup, right? And the R1S is the SUV? Yeah, but the R1S, very modest volumes. In fact, the, the company has only publicly disclosed that the CEO, RJ Scarringe, and the CFO, Claire McDonough, have one. No one else has publicly you know, taken delivery of one yet. But I'm told they are building saleable vehicles. Sources say it's like you know a negligible number. So, Laura, what's the feeling in the EV marketplace as to... Boy, the, comp the competitive landscape is really beginning to change here as we have some of the, you know, the big uh, OEMs, whether it's Volkswagen or Ford or General Motors, really ramp up their EV game. What's the feeling about how the market share might shake out over the next several years? There is a feeling that competition is ramping up and that poses questions long term for Tesla's volume and its and its share price, right? Focusing on Europe a little bit, Volkswagen, when we think of their total car sales, only 5% are fully electric. There's been a lot of hype about Ford recently, their push into electrification, market share surpassing $100 billion for the first time. But Tesla is still by far the market leader for EVs and for batteries. So the Cybertruck, which I know Matt Miller will want to come on to, there was concern initially that the new batteries, which are more efficient, used in the Cybertruck. That was the reason behind the delay. Turns out the batteries are fine and Tesla's yeah. planning to use those more efficient batteries across all their models. So it still has that competitive advantage with technology. I mean, the thing is 5% isn't very little, right? Volkswagen makes 10 million cars a year. So that's different than Tesla, although they've really ramped up their production, right? What was it, Ed, like 936,000 um, for, the, for the full year? That's- yeah doing what they're doing well in, right. the, in that sense but 
Laura mentions the truck. What a huge disappointment on so many levels. I mean, first he breaks the window with the bowling ball or whatever. I know, I was there, remember? I mean, <laughs> I've been waiting a long time so for this embarrassing. match. So embarrassing. But I thought they were going to come out with it eventually. Now Ford is going to beat them. Rivian has beat them. Looks like Chevy's going to beat them. Everyone's beating them to market with the truck. Well, look, they justified it that supply chain issues are disrupting current production of Model Y, Model 3, right? The cash cows, the profitable vehicles. So they can't justify a product launch if they're not able to service and get the parts that they need to build volume on existing vehicles. Um, but this is a comms issue, guys. Like, think about earnings season broadly across the S&P 500. Beating on the top and bottom line hasn't really counted for much. The street's looking for how strong is the current quarter, how strong is the year. Elon Musk tweets going into this earnings, having sort of spectacularly announced he doesn't want to do earnings right. calls anymore because he's too busy, that he'll outline a product roadmap. He goes on the call and does not outline a product roadmap. <laughs> In fact, he does the opposite. Sorry, guys, these products are all on the back burner because of supply chain issues. Right. Um, it's a comms issue. Yep. All right. Ed Ludlow, thanks so much for joining us. Ed Ludlow, West Coast correspondent for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg TV producer Laura Wright uh, joining us uh, from London, getting the latest on EVs. The sector's under uh, some pressure here. Lots of moving pieces, supply chain issues, competition. But you know that Matt Miller's all over it. And I'm Nathan Hager in the Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. We do all scream for ice cream. Yeah. And we're very excited to bring in the uh, CEO of Dryer's Grand Ice Cream, Kim petal Regwam, with us this morning. Kim, thanks for being here. I got the uh, long straw because I'm probably the biggest fan of ice cream there is. Well, <laughs> no, we're no, 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 no. You don't no. think so? I, I don't believe that anyone eats more ice cream than me. If I eat less Are we than a pint... throw down over this? If week? I eat less than a pint a night, my wife thinks I'm on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I admit, I, I split the pints with my wife. Kim, I got to ask, though, you know, we're, we're coming up to this nor'easter here. We're bracing for a lot of snow. What advice do you have for ice cream fans like us as we're digging in for the cold here cream is perfect for any weather any occasion i firmly believe that so uh, i don't think you need to temper it because it's cold outside uh you know put it on vanilla haagen-dazs on top of a dessert item might be a wonderful way to spend a cold evening so um you know be creative <laughs> I've always wondered, exactly. you, you know, I've always wanted to start my own ice cream shop and I could use dryers or, you know, um, I could be, you know, I could be a vendor for you. What, what would I do in the winter? Because people just don't go into ice cream shops as much in the winter. And I've always wondered, do I do ice cream in the summer and then like bagels in the winter or coffee in the winter, <laughs> ice cream in the summer? What, what do you what do you typically see people do with uh, small town shops? We see, I mean, people eat ice cream. You'd, you'd be surprised. People have ice cream all year round, um, which we love. For the, you know, loyalists, we absolutely love them. Our Haagen-Dazs shops um, see consumers all year round. And so we have, you know, seasonal flavors. What I would say is um, in the winter months, try things like Haagen-Dazs peppermint bark, flavors like that. We have pumpkin pie um, flavors with our Dryers and Edie's brands. And in the summer, go for a, a drumstick. Take your cone and, you know, take a walk outside. Um, but there is a product for every time of year, for sure. Dryer's Grand Ice Cream, if I look across the portfolio, we've got something for everyone and every occasion. Have you thought about 
um, selling more alcoholic beverages because I love a boozy milkshake. Um, I can't remember where I first tried a Hummer. I think I was at a wedding in Detroit. And uh, delicious way to imbibe. But you don't see it much at ice cream shops. You don't. We have it. Hagen, our Hagenas brand has a spirits collection. So we do have some uh, alcohol-infused flavors. Um, you know, ice cream is a product. So Dryer's Grand Ice Cream, when I look at the portfolio and who buys our products and loves our products, it's across all ages. So, you know, there's families, kids, older consumers. And so we do have spirits products, um, and you can certainly mix and make your own. If you look online and Pinterest, you'll find lots of recipes for outshine fruit bars in champagne. They're just delicious. Um, so if, if that's what you're interested in, there are recipes and options. <laughs> if, that's where, if that's where Don't you worry. are, Matt. Um, all right. So, Kim, if I go to a store and I go to the ice cream aisle, am I going to find product there? Are you guys seeing supply chain issues like seemingly every other business is? So I will say we – I'll start with kind of a broad statement, but I really mean it. We have no plans of slowing down at Dryer's Grand Ice Cream. So while the world around us, you know, there are supply chain challenges for sure, we have spent the last year and two years really making contingency plans, backup plans to make sure that we can still deliver ice cream to our customers, so to our retailers and consumers no matter what. And so we have, in, in the last three months, we've opened up three new um, selling locations for retailers to source product from, so cold storage locations across the country. And what that allows us to do is move inventory there, be closer to the warehouses of some of our, our you know biggest and best customers so that we can get product to them faster, right? As there are distribution challenges, the closer proximity you are, the easier it is to deliver. We have made huge investments, I will say, in our factories. So we have four factories across uh, the, in the United States. We have announced in the last 12 months 15 new production lines across those factories. We are building out mm. walls, facilities in every location, and that's all around being able to produce more product so that it is on shelf when you go into your store. I'm thrilled. I'm pleased with every single employee in our manufacturing facilities, in our distribution network. That is what they're focused on. And what I would say is it, it, it's our results in the marketplace are showing that those investments in the infrastructure, production capability, because we, we know that the challenges are likely to continue for a while. We are poised and ready and doing everything we can to meet growing demand for ice cream. And I will say uh, ice cream demand is going up. I, I wonder about pricing. Um, I, I, yeah. Surely you felt massive inflation for your on the input side. Are you able to pass it off? We are. So we are seeing inflation on our cost structure, right? Um, like everybody is. We've been trying to find creative ways around having to, to – impact consumers as little as possible on that. So trying to find places where there might have been inefficiency in our organization and our operations to use, you know, any savings to be able to cover those costs. We think some of the costs over time, you know, will come back down. Um, and, and we're really looking hard at that. 
certainly in in some areas, um, you know, you see prices going up everywhere. And um, but we're doing everything in our power to minimize that. We're leveraging our global network of our ice cream global company um, to source products um, or ingredients for things where we can't get them locally to be able to to source them and make them available um, and try not to impact consumer pricing. Yeah, just 30 seconds left here, Kim, but I miss the full half gallon. I mean, that's not coming back. Right. I mean, when you think about the pricing, you can't make the packaging any smaller. Pasta for kids. Exactly. <laughs> we, we have plenty of uh, large-sized products, um, big containers, half gallons. We also, you know, what we're seeing is real growth in snack products, so cones and sticks and sandwiches, and we're making lots of different multi-pack versions of that to get at, you know, the volume you're looking for. Um, at a price point that you will also feel good about. Thanks so much for joining us. I think we're all excited to talk about ice cream. Even in <laughs> uh, January, it just snowed, started yep. snowing. <laughs> I agree. Perfect. I agree with Kim. It is it is never too cold to eat ice cream. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. So we'll see. But that was fun to get Kim on talking about the ice cream business. Good By the business way, if you're wondering about the Hummer, the recipe, a little Kahlua, some light rum and some vanilla ice cream. Kim would probably recommend some kind of bourbon vanilla from Hagen Dos. Okay. Mix that up and you're good to go. Okay. And uh, but don't drink too many because they go down <laughs> they go down real easy. And then you don't realize until later that it may have been too much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.